The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesdays live from 10 to 11 Eastern. And we archive the show at the end of the day, so then you can listen to it any time. I have two guests coming up in this hour. My first guest is Dr. David Walsh. She's a parenting expert, author of Smart Parenting, Smarter Kids, the one-brain book you need to help your child grow brighter, healthier, and happier, and who doesn't want to do that? Dr. Walsh is a best-selling author. He's an award-winning psychologist, and he is a leading authority on parenting, an expert at translating headline-making scientific findings about the developing brain into practical suggestions for parenting today. So uh, my second guest is going to be journalist Caitlin Bell Barnett. She is uh, a writer, an author. Her new book is Dosed, Caitlin Bell Barnett, began taking antidepressants as a teenager. And in her book, she takes a nuanced look at the issues as she weaves together stories from members of this medication generation, which she is one of them, and explores how drugs informed this medication generation, um, uh, informed their experiences at home, in school, and with the mental health professions. But first, Dr. David Walsh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. You're the psychologist, the expert raising children who are brighter, healthier, and happier. Uh, I don't know a parent who doesn't want to do that. Everybody does. But um, smart parenting, smarter kids, how do we do it? Well, you know, uh, every, uh, you know, parents have been using kind of their best judgment and instincts for years and years, for centuries, really. Uh, and parenting is an art, always has been, always will be. There's no book anywhere that can tell parents exactly how to handle every situation for every child. But science can inform the art, and one of the exciting things for 21st century parents is that brain science is helping us better understand how the miracle that we carry around on top of our shoulders how it works, how it develops, and very, very importantly, can give parents kind of insights. Uh, and, and, and I translate that science into the book that, you're, that we're talking about this morning, Smart Parenting, Smarter Kids, and, and really, uh, you know, cover all sorts of uh, things that are, are, are very, very important to give our children the, uh, you know, the, the best uh, the best start that we can. So even the basics, for example, like nutrition, exercise, and sleep, things that we often associate with, uh, you know, healthy bodies, strong muscles. You know, when we talk about nutrition and exercise, we talk about, you know, healthy muscles, healthy bones, heart, healthy cardiovascular system. Well, it turns out that nutrition, exercise, and sleep are incredibly important for how our brain works. Because, for example, with nutrition, uh, even though the brain only takes up about 2% of the body's mass, 
it burns up between 20 and 20, 25% of the body's energy. So the fuel that we provide becomes very, very important to get maximum performance out of our brain. But uh, Dr. Walsh, I want to stop you there because, uh, you know, I obviously grew up in a different generation, and I, I, I feel that some of those things, I mean, my mother realized that I needed exercise, I needed good food, and I needed sleep. So what makes this different? What are some of the things, um, what have we learned in terms of how our kids' brains function um, from, you know, from the time they're born to the yep. teenage years and the developing brain. What's new about all of this? Well, let me give you an example with regard to exercise. Um, exercise, uh, exercise doesn't just kind of burn off the energy. You know, my, our parents in previous generations say, you know, get out of the house, run around so you can burn off some of that energy. Well, that's true, but now we know, for example... Um, exercises, exercise increases four chemicals in the brain, all of which are important. Uh, dopamine, which makes us feel good. Serotonin, which stabilizes our mood. Norepinephrine, these are the fancy names, which gives us energy. And then the new dis- newest discovery is that exercise produces a substance called BDNF, which is short for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Now, what that means, forget the long name, what it means is miracle grow for the brain. What that means is that the, brain's bran- the brain cell branches literally sprout uh, when the brain, uh, when we're getting exercise. And, and so it becomes very, very important for our brain functioning to get a lot of exercise. And when we realize that kids today are getting less exercise than any generation before, then it starts to kind of translate into practice. Okay, what does that mean? That means, you know, it's time to turn off that video game and get outside and run around. Okay, so what you're saying is this, the neuroscience that now we are, that we uh, neuroscience kind of validates what we've known, but it's really very specific, you're saying. And it's certain, let's take that, okay, like exercise. So, so what do we do? Let's be specific about infants, uh, kids in elementary school, middle school, high school, you take us up through those years. What kind of specific exercises should they be doing? We, okay, not sitting in front of the television or not sitting in front of the video games. We know that. Are there specific exercises that, that kids should be doing so that it will enhance their brain functioning? Any exercise that helps them develop a good sweat. Here's the scientific part, and then we'll translate it into practical application. The scientific part is 75% of maximum heart rate. Okay, so what does that mean? That means working up a good sweat. It means running around. It doesn't mean just standing on a field. It means actually running around, and and that can take many, many different forms. It can take the form of a soccer game. It can take the form of tag. It can take all sorts of forms. If if kids do that for a minimum of one hour a day total, okay, then they start to get the amount of exercise that their brain needs. with regard to sleep, for example, um, every single age group right now in the United States of children is not getting as much sleep as they need. And sleep is critically important for learning, for mood stabilization, because during sleep, our brain does a spring cleaning every single day of the week, every single night of the week, I should say. Uh, and, and then nutrition, what, what we know about nutrition is that if we were to if we were to try to devise the most unhealthy diet for the brain, it would be the American fast food diet. 
and uh, and so what we need to do is make sure that our kids have their treats. Uh, you know, this is not kind of a boot camp approach to parenting. You know, the kids have their treats, but we start to make sure that they get their fruits and vegetables and things like that every day because they provide all of the ingredients that our brain needs to function well. Why aren't we doing this? I mean, you go around not only on, you're a, a well-known renowned psychologist, but you, and not only an author, but you also go around, you lead, you, you lecture to parents, right. uh, you, uh, when you go to these parent groups, it, it does sound like we're doing exactly the opposite, which you say we need to do in order to nurture our children's brains and to be a healthy society and, and to make sure that our kids grow up and are healthy and, uh, you know, are able to, 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 go, to get out there and, and, and do good things, but, we're not doing it. We're doing exactly the opposite. So why are we doing the opposite? What's been your connection with the parents? What do they say? Well, you know, there's a, the, the good news is that there's a growing awareness on the part of parents that things are a little bit out of balance. So, for example, uh, just minutes before I, I, you know, uh, I started this interview, I was responding to a question from a parent who's very, very concerned about the number of hours that her 12-year-old old daughter spends with technology. She's got a smartphone, and she spends all of her time now texting with her friends, social networking, etc., and as I was responding to her, I realized that there are more and more parents who are concerned about this, worried about this. Not that this technology is bad, because it's certainly not. Not that social networking is bad, because it's not. But if we're not careful, things get way out of balance. And when I talk to parents, I think more and more parents are aware that things are getting a little bit out of balance. And so what I always talk to parents about doing is making sure that, you know, the, the, what we need to look for is balance. And that means with regard to nutrition, that means with regard to exercise, that means with, with regard to sleep, that with regard to nutrition, for example, we don't rule out any kind of treats or junk food, candy, or things like that, but we need to make sure that our kids are getting a balanced diet in terms of activity. Um, we're not going to put our kids on an exercise program where they, you know, we get them out of bed at 6 o'clock in the morning and have them do calisthenics. No, it's just a matter of balance. And there are times to kind of put away that smartphone. There are times to, you know, make sure that kids aren't spending too many, time, uh, too many hours with those video games so they can do other things as well. There's a growing concern, for example, um, about the decline of social, real-world social skills on the part of our kids as they spend more and more of their time socializing and communicating online. Well, that concern is now being reinforced by some of the latest research. You know, one of the things that I think is really important for all of us to remember is that about the brain is that whatever the brain does a lot of is what the brain gets good at. Our brains are, are like muscles. And whatever we have them doing a lot of is what they're going to get good at, whether that's tennis, whether that's math, whether that's texting, whether that's video games, whether that's social skills. And so what we want to make sure that we do as parents is make sure that our kids' brains get good at all of the things that we know that are going to be critical for their success. And Dr. Walsh, how can we do that if the parents, and I observe some of these parents who are now let's say, in their late 30s and in their 40s, and they themselves do a lot of social networking and they yes. are on their computers, and they were raised 
kind of in, in a, you know, they're getting to the age where they also were brought up playing video games and, yep. and being on their computers and cell phones, et cetera. If they're not doing it, if their lives aren't in balance, how can we expect them to help their kids' lives become in balance? I mean, I walk four miles a day, so I walk by the, in these neighborhoods and I watch and I observe the mothers who, let's say, are at home with their kids. And I look at them, they're sitting on the front step, the kids are playing, but the mothers are on their computers or on their cell phones having really not too much connection with the kids. So they're doing what you're saying we should be teaching our kids not to do. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that question because you just put your finger on a very, very important thing. What we parents need to do is, first of all, look in the mirror and look at our own behavior. I just, it's, it's really interesting that you gave the example of kind of walking and watching parents do that. I just, I, I just, I took my grandchildren to a playground last week, and I counted 10 parents at the playground whose kids were there along with us, and I, I did a survey, my own personal <laughs> survey. Eight out of the 10 were sitting on benches looking at their smartphones and their, as their kids were playing in the, in the playground. And so I constantly tell parents, before we talk about the kids, we need to take a look at how, what we're doing uh, in terms of how we're spending our time. Um, you know, a, a, a man, as I talked about this, it was just a couple of months ago that a man came up to me after one of my parents' seminars and said, Dr. Walsh, you said, I know exactly what you're talking about because my four-year-old son did an intervention on me about three weeks ago. The intervention took place at, uh, during dinner, and he said his four-year-old son looked at him at the middle of dinner and said, Dad, would you please put that away? I'm trying to talk to you. And what he was talking about is his dad was there kind of looking at his messages on his BlackBerry, and he said it hit him that here we were at dinner, my four-year-old son, and in Instead of taking advantage of the time that we do have together to talk, I was checking my messages on my BlackBerry. And so I absolutely believe, we're kind of talking about the technology part of this now, I, act, I, I completely uh, am convinced that we have to start to develop a discipline around the technology. Because if we don't, it can start to invade every corner and crevice of our lives. And, uh, and before we talk about the kids, I think you're absolutely right. We have to take a look in the mirror and, and take a look at ourselves. Yeah, and I think that's really important. I mean, that's obviously what you're doing in your, in your writings as well as when you talk to parents and, and go around the country because I think this whole issue of discipline and balance has gotten out of balance and we're not disciplined. And we, we, as technology became more and more a part of our lives, it, we kind of got into this argument, this all-or-nothing argument, which I think sometimes we, as at least in American culture, we do. It's all-or-nothing. Put away all the games. Don't do the. But it's not all-or-nothing. It's really much more com- complicated. When I mean, we really have to have a formula or some kind of a a plan, I guess. You know, a, to to figure out how we're going to create that balance in our lives, and and we haven't done that yet. No, we haven't, and you're, and you're absolutely right. And one of the reasons, uh, you know, we're kind of focusing our conversation on the technology, which is a very, very important part of 21st century life. And one of the reasons that this technology can, if we're not careful, 
invade every corner of our life. It has to do with the brain. And one of the things that I explain in the book, Smart Parenting, Smarter Kids, is that one of the reasons that it's so hard to not pay attention to that text message, one of the reasons that it's so hard not to respond to that email, is what is called the seeking circuits of the brain. Our brain is wired to seek. And so when we hear that ping, we're almost driven to, what is it? Who, who texted me? Who emailed me? The seeking circuit, of course, has been a good survival circuit for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, it's what helps keep us alive, seeking food, seeking shelter, seeking companionship. We're born to seek. Well, all of the modern technology is a natural match for the seeking circuit of the brain, which is why if we don't develop discipline around using it, it can literally start to take over our lives. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, my kids are older, so I'm, I guess I only, what I'm doing, I, I do exactly what you're talking about. I can't help it. I hear the ping. I have the, it's a curiosity, too. Well, I, exactly. I have to, See, yeah. the seeking circuit is what's behind curiosity, and it's a very healthy thing, but we also need to develop some discipline around it. A recent study, which I uh, actually quote in the book, Smart Parenting, Smarter Kids, and this, again, is about adults. The average uh, worker in the United States whose work involves a computer is checking text or emails 39 times an hour. And so that means that they're interrupting uh, what they're working on 39 times an hour, and in their mind they're saying, well, it's just going to take me a second. And now I'm hearing the same thing from teachers. Because all of the kids have smartphones, it's more and more difficult for teachers to get and keep kids' attention because they're always checking things, checking the text, sending a text, checking their Facebook page, whatever it is. So what do you tell uh, the and, teachers? How do they And so it's an example of how we have to start to develop the discipline around this. One of the things that I recommend to, to families is to develop a technology contract which we all, uh, you know, which we all kind of sign off on. And it could be things like, you know, not bringing technology to the dinner table, making sure that the television's off while we're having dinner, a technology curfew where, you know, we decide at what time we're going to take our cell phones down to the kitchen and all put them up to, you know, hook them up to the recharger overnight so that kids are literally not keeping their cell phone at their bedside all night waiting for that text because that's what's happening for some kids. And it's impacting their sleep, it's impacting their mood, it's impacting uh, their, you know, their social skills. And so it's an example of you know, 21st century both promise and challenge. The promise is all of this technology has wonderful benefits, uh, but the challenge is that we have to make sure that we learn how to use it. And, of course, this is one topic among many that the 21st century parent can better equip themselves to do a, uh, you know, to, to do a better job. Well, one last question, because there's so much in the book, and, and readers, uh, listeners and readers need to, to go to, you know, buy the book, because we've only covered, obvious, as we've been talking about, we covered a small portion of what, uh, uh, what you cover in the book, Smart Parenting, Smarter Kids, the One Brain Book. You need to help your child grow brighter, healthier, and happier. We just... just comment on this because we do only have a couple minutes left, but Dr. Walsh, we've been talking about what you shouldn't be doing with technology and having a technology contract. Don't we have to make what, if we're not going to do that, we're going to do something else. We're going to exercise. We're going to eat well. We're gonna, but don't we have to make that more appealing too? It's not just don't do this. It's, whoa, we're going to do this and this is going to be great. So we have to make that appealing. Absolutely. 
you know, a, a starvation diet of don't, don't, don't is never going to attract anyone. We need to make the alternatives attractive. And, 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 and so, for example, there's a whole chapter in the book on how important play is. Uh, and I'm not talking about video games. I'm talking about, you know, uh, for, for preschool children, what, what is called free play. Uh, where they make up their own, you know, imagination games and role-playing. All of those things are terribly important for children's development. And, and so we have to make sure that we don't over-organize things and make play a fun activity. And kids naturally like this stuff. So it's not like we have to, you know, it's not like we have to, uh, you know, kind of sugarcoat it to make it, you know, enjoyable. Small children love free play. They love making things up, and they love, uh, you know, fantasy play and all of those things. We need to make sure that we give them the opportunity to, uh, you know, to do those things. Yeah, I, I think that's to give them the kind of the environment to be able to flourish, but we don't have to have all of these, and this is another area, the, the planned activities necessarily. Just, no, you know, exactly give them the right. time in the, no, uh, in the, the backyard or the room in the house or wherever it is, and, and they will the play. You know, parents, the 21st century parent is in danger of developing an allergic reaction to the words, I'm bored. Because then parents think, oh my gosh, I have to become the nonstop entertainment committee for my children. And part of what we need to be able to do is to, you know, um, is to say, you know, you need to find something to do. Um, you know, and one of the suggestions that I make in the book Smart Parenting, Smarter Kids is to have a chore jar in the, uh, in the kitchen. And it's little jobs for kids to do. So when they say I'm bored, uh, you say, "Well, you can let's go to the chore jar." Well, kids will quickly figure out that they better figure out what they want to do rather than end up in the chore jar. And kids will kids will figure this out for themselves, and then they'll find ways that they are having fun on their own without the parents directing everything. Yeah, and I think that's I see so many of these parents directing, organizing, facilitating the word. Board is probably the most taboo subject that, and you you just said it. Nobody wants their kids to be bored. They have to be doing something, creating. They, I mean, you know, and we put such pressure on them to be successful, even at their play. I think that's another thing that comes in. You know, they have to do something that's worthwhile. Yep, exactly. So, you know, what we've talked about, and I really appreciate the opportunity to to discuss this because they are such important 21st century topics. And it's not like we've been doing everything wrong. We clearly haven't. We've been raising kids for thousands and thousands of years. The, the last chapter in the book I really had fun with because what I did is that I took all of the things that my mother used to tell me, you know, when I was growing up generations ago and translated them into modern brain science. And it turns out that a lot of the things that we've been doing, uh, you know, kind of by instinct make a tremendous amount of good sense. And the brain science can also help us understand that some of the things that we were, that we thought were, were mistakes and we can correct those mistakes and prepare our kids to be, as I said in the title of the book, bright, smarter, or, excuse me, brighter, healthier, and happier in the 21st century. Great. It's been great having you on the show today and uh, obviously, uh, Thanks for sharing all of this information. You've been a great help to me and to my uh, listeners. And uh, you can go to, uh, do you have a website we can go I to? I do. Thanks okay. for asking. DrDaveWalsh.com. Yeah. D-R-Dave-Walsh, W-A-L-S-H.com. Great. We're going to take a short break right now. Uh, coming up next is uh, Caitlin Bell Barnett. She's author of Dose, The Medication Generation Grows Up. Uh, but first, uh, 
Don't go away. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. The Catherine Zox Show will be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio, the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen every Wednesday live from 10 to 11 Eastern, and then we archive the show at the end of the day, and you can listen to it anytime. My second guest is, is um, the author of Dosed, The Medication Generation Grows Up, and the author is Caitlin Bell Barnett. Caitlin is a freelance writer. She's written for the Boston Globe, New York Observer, Parents and Prevention. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband. And this is her first book. And on the cover of her book, author Lauren Slater says, Dose is a book that should be read by everyone concerned about quick fixes for complex problems. Uh, Over the last two decades, we have seen, as she indicates in her book, a dramatic spike in the number of young people taking psychiatric medication, and Caitlin was one of them. She began taking Prozac when she was 17 years old, so she was just a teenager at the time. So we've had more and more drugs are on the market, and more and more teenagers and kids and younger kids have been diagnosed with anxiety, depression, et cetera, and they have been taking these, these medication, and this has been going on, let's say, for the past 20 years. So, Caitlin, um, who was one of those kids who, as I said, began taking some of these drugs when she was 17 years old, has written a book called Dose, and she has, has uh, explored uh, the use of these psychopharmaceutical drugs and the effect that it's had on her generation. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Caitlin. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it was a long introduction, but <laughs> one more thing to say, Caitlin, because I do want to tell my listeners that uh, uh, I've known your mother since she was 
10 years old. And uh, I do have to say, and I have to, you know, she was the one person who got me through uh, Latin in ninth grade. I don't know if she ever knew that, but she was, <laughs> I hated it, and she was sort of my peer tutor. So, but this is, this is all about you. It's not about your mom. So, okay, don't. The medication generation grows up. Uh, you know, I'm going to make the assumption you wrote about it because you are one of those kids. That's right. Um, one reason that I was really motivated to write about it is that at first when I started thinking about this issue, I thought that I had had actually a relatively uncomplicated experience with medication. And I figured, in fact, that, you know, Prozac had worked quite well for me. I'd had problems with anxiety and depression that started actually when I was about 12 years old. They lasted all through high school. I tried therapy. Um, for whatever reason, therapy didn't work for me. I think probably I just didn't click with my therapist. It just wasn't working. We lived in a small town. There weren't that many options for therapists. So I tried a couple different ones. I couldn't find one um, that I got along with and that was helpful. And I asked my parents, actually, if I could go on medication because I had learned um, through my own research, basically, that it had been very helpful for a lot of people. And okay, so when you ask your parents this, but Caitlin, because you felt that the therapist didn't help uh, or wasn't helping you, and you're, you've done all this research, obviously, and I didn't say this in the beginning of the show, you went, you know, very smart, went to Dartmouth, you have a degree from Dartmouth and, and Columbia University, so you're saying to your parents, I want to take drugs, essentially. Um, what did they say? Did they see that as the only option? I would say my parents weren't too thrilled when I asked them initially. <laughs> One of their concerns a very legitimate concern, and it was that there was not a lot of research out there on the long-term effects um, on young people's brain, you know, brain developing brains and developing bodies. And that's very true. And when I began to do my research for this book, I found that that is still very much true. There are just not studies following uh, kids and teenagers from the time that they begin taking medication you know, for many, many years on end and and asking the question, well, how do these drugs affect their brains and bodies? Most of the studies last for a few months, maybe a year or two at most. So that was a, a legitimate concern on the part of my parents. Um, I sort of, you know, talked them, I guess I talked them down from that concern. I said, look, I have been depressed uh, for something five, six years now, and I just can't take it anymore. I need, I think this is a legitimate thing to try. Now, how did the physicians, because obviously, yes, you're, you're, you're saying to your parents, I feel depressed, it's been four or five years, I need to do something about this, and my therapy isn't working. So now, next step, because I want to really take it step by step, what happens? I mean, because the physician, pediatrician, and or family practitioner, or whomever, or psychiatrist, has to agree to give you these medications. That's right. And again, I want to stress, we lived in a small town. There was no child psychiatrist, at least not that I'm aware of, and that's a common situation. There's a real shortage of child psychiatrists in this country. Um, that's been the case for several decades now, and the professional organizations have been calling for um, a push to train more child psychiatrists. So, yes, it was my pediatrician who prescribed the Prozac, and it was me going in and saying, I'm depressed, what, what could you prescribe? Um, and 
she said, well, uh, I'm going to prescribe Prozac. I don't know her exact reasons for prescribing it. I'm guessing it was the drug that had been around for the longest. Um, and I'm also guessing that I think there had been at that point one study of Prozac in, in children and teens that had shown uh, some effectiveness. So you've been taking, and I guess on and off, as I understand it. I mean, you have bouts of depression, but you've, you know, on and off since you were 17 years old. How old are you now? I'm 28 turning 29. Okay, so we got about 10 or 12 years. Um, but you are, you know, uh, went to great schools, um, Ivy League schools. Now you've written this book. Um, you are very accomplished. People are going to say, well, okay, so what's really the problem? I mean, um, you certainly don't have a problem. It doesn't appear that you have a problem with the fact that you started taking medication for depression when you were 17 years old. Look at you. You've done great. Exactly, and I, I think one thing that I wanted to look at, I thought that, that I had had uh, a pretty uncomplicated experience, but I, you know, I wanted to look at the fact that I think, first of all, a lot of people started taking medication at a younger age than I did, and I had a little inkling that that might complicate their experience. I think that um, the younger that you are when you start taking medication, the more, quote-unquote, issues you start to have. And I think the more likely it is that the parents, of course, or the doctor are the one pushing for the medication, not the child. So it's not so much an informed decision by the young person themselves. I was 17 years old. I could do some research. I could be the one sort of leading this push to take the medication. And it's a very different thing when the child is perceiving this um, as something maybe as punishment for bad behavior, for example. Uh, if they're having behavioral problems and all of a sudden they feel like this medication is being pushed on them, uh, or perhaps they feel like it marks them as, as fundamentally flawed in some way. So kids can attach all kinds of meanings to medication. And I had a little inkling that that might be the case when I started researching this book. And, in fact, my research really did bear that out. So that was something that I wanted to look at. What happens for the people who started taking it at a younger age? What happens when people didn't start taking it um, as willingly as I did? Or what happens when they didn't have as positive a reaction to the medication as I did? So let's stop there because you did. You 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 interviewed these these well not these kids and actually they're in their twenties and thirties. And what did happen? Let's take one of those uh, examples that you have in the book uh, that perhaps didn't turn out so well because they didn't have a choice. And I also think, uh, Caitlin, that uh, you know who are the drugs for? So the, the or the for the parents or for the children, especially as you mentioned, when they're taking them at some such a young age, if parents have disruptive kids, and instead of really wanting to deal with the behaviors in another way, it's much easier to give them some kind of medication. It makes it easier for the parent, not necessarily for the for the child. Yes, I think yes, I think that that's absolutely um, a, certainly a possibility, and and that absolutely happens in many cases. Um, so, for instance, in in one of I think the more the more prominent cases that I discuss in the book, uh, one of the foster children who I, I refer to as as Paul, it's really it's just a very a very sad case. Uh, 
he ended up getting um, being taken um, from his home um, as a five-year-old child. He suffered uh, all kinds of abuse and, and real trauma that he couldn't even fully discuss with me because uh, he hadn't processed it, and it was basically too psychologically painful. So I got sort of the bare outlines of what had happened and why he was taken from his home, um, but I think that there were other things that happened that he couldn't even talk about. Um, he, so, like I say, he was taken from his biological parents. Uh, he was a very disruptive, aggressive child. He was immediately or almost immediately put on Ritalin um, to control his behavior or to help him focus and calm down. Within a few, he started bouncing from house to house to ha- foster home to foster home because nobody could deal with how aggressive he was. Um, within a couple of years, they put him on a mood-stabilizing medication. He then uh, actually um, overdosed on that medication in an attempt to fix himself, which I thought was so sad. He, he so desperately wanted to be adopted uh, by a family and to have somebody that really loved him and unconditionally accepted him for who he was that he took a whole bottle of pills and, and very nearly died. That only made him seem more unstable, so they put him on an, anti, an atypical antipsychotic medication, which were increasingly being prescribed uh, to kids with childhood bipolar disorder, um, which we've seen being increasingly prescribed. Um, he got that diagnosis of childhood bipolar disorder. That got attached to him. It, um, I didn't have access to his medical records, I should say, so it was a little hard for me to say how justified that diagnosis was. Uh, but in any case, he did not like that medication. It made him gain huge amounts of weight. He became diabetic. He just had a terrible reaction to it. He felt it changed his personality. Um, and he and basically you know, felt... You talk about... I, I'm going to interrupt you because yeah, I think sure. that's, it's, it's really... You just said it changed his personality. And I think as I understand it, you know, in reading the book, that's one of the premises of the book, that when you take this medication when you're young and you take it throughout your informative years, that it really has an impact on your identity and how your personality forms, and maybe that's not such a good thing. Now, you're talking about Paul. He seems, you know, as I'm listening to you, he's kind of an extreme in the sense that he was in foster care. He, you know, he was really acting out. Um, So maybe we want to talk about perhaps... One of the examples, uh, another example, uh, I guess there were five individuals who were medicated as youngsters that you talk about in the book. Maybe somebody who comes from more of a a seemingly middle-class environment, not such extreme forms of behavior, but yet at the same time they too were medicated. What's the... I asked you like three questions, I think. <laughs> sure. Um, that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, he was he was absolutely um, a little bit more of an extreme case. And, and you know, you could see where where maybe the, the foster care workers or, or the foster parents would be throwing up their hands and they, they wouldn't really know what to do with him. I, the, and, and medication would perhaps seem like a reasonable thing to do. Um, to take... Another example from the book um, where I think medication uh, seems seems pretty pretty justified but but also ended up being very complicated uh, there was another um, another subject who i I refer in the book um, his his name is um, Caleb um, and he was deeply deeply depressed 
And he also, he didn't explicitly ask his parents for medication. Um, but as a 12-year-old, he was so depressed that, you know, he was basically suicidal, but he was too depressed to kill himself. And uh, I think that this had stemmed from severe bullying, sort of set it off, and then he just fell into a, a deep depression. And he had a great, a great response to medication. So initially, it seemed like medication worked really well for him, and then he started experiencing uh, some some weird symptoms several years later, where it seemed like the medication was really either not necessary anymore or not working. And he told his doctor he just didn't want to take it anymore. Um, and it turned out that he was experiencing mania and he had switched into, into bipolar disorder. So that was an example where initially antidepressants worked really well for him, but where um, after a few years they uh, either set him off in, into bipolar disorder or just were no longer appropriate. And that was in a little, in a way difficult for him to deal with, that this drug that had worked so well was no longer this, this magical cure for him. And you, you're using the word magical cure, and I think that's something that parents and physicians uh, tend to want to do, have a magical cure for anxiety and depression and uh, maybe even just generally fearful children. Uh doesn't even have to be such an exaggerated form of, of you know, like depression or, or anxiety. But what are the alternatives? What did you take away when you, you, you wrote the book, but in all your... Uh, you know, interviewing these individuals and the stories. Do do we have alternatives to medication? Why are we over medicating? Uh, what else can we be doing? Well, I think one of the things that I took away is that if you are going to take medication, uh, it's important to really not expect it to be a quick fix or a magical cure. A, a few people do experience these kind of wonderful, miracle, immediate turnarounds. Sure, I interviewed people like that. But people shouldn't place their hopes on, on medication in that, in that way. So they should think very carefully about the fact that medication really does impact so many areas of kids' lives and, and really complicates these different arenas of kids' lives and, like, like we say, makes the process of forming an identity a lot more complicated. So just think hard ab- about that before placing or making the decision to put the kid on medication. And th- that was the, the main thing that, that I took away. And then to, to realize that you know, medication, I think, works really well when combined with some other therapies. So behavior therapy, school accommodations, uh, I think, are really important to help the child, you know, do as well in school as possible. Uh, when I say that I had a bad experience with therapy as a teenager, that doesn't mean that I'm anti-therapy at all. I, I now have been in sort of a traditional, you know, psychotherapy, talk psychotherapy for several years and found that enormously helpful uh, for my anxiety. It just means that I think I didn't find the right therapists um, at the time. So, and one thing I think that that I really want to stress is that talking about the experience of medication, 
I think can be enormously helpful for kids because they're, like I said, it is really complicated and confusing, and they often don't have anybody to discuss that with. So discussing that in therapy can be really helpful for them. Yeah, I think you, you mentioned two really important things or they, it brings to mind. I mean, I think the quick fix, which we started out the interview with, is, is not something we want to get into, and that it's much more complicated than that when you have kids who are depressed or anxious, and that it, but it takes more time. Uh, on the parents' part, on the school's part, on the physician's part, and we kind of live in this quick fix society. So we really have to stand back and say, "What's?" The, I think this is what you're saying. What's the best for these kids? I mean, it's going to be more complicated to find that balance. You know, therapy, medication, uh, changing one's behavior. I mean, I think that that we do need to do that. Difficult to do, but um, what about you know? Okay, you've been examining you know the kids who took medication when they were younger, and it's, let's say, over a 10, 15, 20-year period, did you find that when uh, children have taken medication when they were younger, uh, whether they asked for it or not, that they tend to develop more addictions when they get older, i.e. alcohol, drugs, um, that sort of thing? Well, that's one area where there actually is pretty good uh, scientific evidence in the form of, of long-term longitudinal studies. And so, so I can get back to the question in, in, in an anecdotal sense, but the studies do actually show from, from what everything that I have seen that that is not the case. Um, and in particular, there, there, uh, there, has, there have been a number of studies looking at kids with uh, ADHD and behavior problems because it it is the case that they are particularly vulnerable when their conditions are not treated um, to higher rates of substance abuse. And there is concern that when you give them stimulants, which are pharmacologically related to drugs like cocaine, that perhaps that would sensitize the brain and make them um, more likely to want to take drugs like cocaine uh, when they get older. The studies, um, all the studies that I have seen, the, the serious studies, show that that's, that's not the case. So, um, however, I should temper that and say that kids uh, with many different kinds of psychiatric disorders, just uh, by the nature of having these disorders, are at risk for substance use disorders as well. There's just a high rate of comorbidity there. Uh, so... Anecdotally, um, no, I didn't see anything like that. However, what I did see is that uh, these kids weren't necessarily heeding their doctor's advice when it came to doctors saying, you know, you're taking these sort of heavy-duty medications here where technically you are not supposed to drink or do drugs. And I think the young people tended to ignore that advice, not necessarily because they were heedless drug addicts, but more because they just wanted to be like their peers who were drinking and were experimenting with drugs, and they didn't want to be different. Let's. We only have a couple minutes left, so I just want to just, I mean, it's sort of bringing up a new topic, but what influence do you think the pharmaceutical companies have on all of this? Because, you know, you talk about making different choices, perhaps, and not becoming over-medicated when you're younger, but yet every commercial after 6 o'clock in the evening is about take this pharmacy, take this drug, take this medication, and you're going to get the quick fix. So 
moms, you know, parents are watching that, kids are watching that. How do we combat that? Well, I think undoubtedly uh, there's there's an influence there, and I think it's probably a subtle influence that kind of weaves its way into into kids' brains. I think probably the more TV they watch, just as is pure speculation, but but the more TV they watch, I'm guessing you know the more susceptible they are to those messages. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's something that we have to pay attention to. Um, what do we want to leave our listeners with? I think it's a, it's a great book. Uh, we, first of all, the website that they can go to, you, they can purchase the book at Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. I purchased it at uh, Barnes & Noble. Dose, the medication generation grows up. Author Caitlin Bell Barnett, that's who we've been talking to. So uh, any websites that you want us to, to direct us to, either to yours or to one that specifically talks about the book. Yes, I have one devoted to the book. It's rxdosed, D-O-S-E-D dot com, rxdosed dot com. Great. It's been great having you on the show today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been yeah, a pleasure. Thanks, Caitlin. Um, we're going to say goodbye because we only have a minute left, and uh, you've been listening to The Catherine Sox Show, your social worker with a microphone, voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. I hope you had a nice morning. Enjoy the week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. 